Good evening, sir. Have you dined with us before? No, I haven't. Okay, well, we do things a little differently here. We're a pharma-to-table restaurant. You mean farm-to-table? No, pharma. Like big pharma? We serve meat from animals treated with state-of-the-art antibiotics. I thought that wasn't a good idea. No, it's really quite... Excuse me. It's really the safest way to eat. Let me tell you about tonight's special. We have a pork loin ampicillin, slow-cooked with a reduction of third and fourth generation cephalosporins, and that's served over a lax regulatory framework. Do you have a wine list? (laughs) (laughs) That's a nasty cough you have. Oh, no, that's the name of tonight's featured wine. It's called... (laughs) (laughs) It's an Iowa Merlot with notes of blackberry, tobacco, and tetracycline. You have antibiotics in your wine? Well, we wouldn't want our little grape friends getting sick. Do you people not get that the overuse of antibiotics is what's making us sick? You people are destroying the microbiomes in our guts and creating superbugs that kill us. Mr. Z-Pack, we've got another one. Get him out of here. Where are you taking me? That's for us to know and for you to find out. Maybe you'll enjoy this radio program about antibiotic-resistant bacteria since you hate antibiotics so very much. And now he always gets the chicken a la Cipro, Colin McEnroe. All right. Well, you can probably tell from uh, the sound of my voice, I have a cold. And when that happens, I often bear in mind the words uh, spoken to me by Wayne Hansen, who's an organic farmer from eastern Connecticut. Food is medicine, is what Wayne always tells me. So even when I'm sick, I drag myself into the kitchen. I prepare myself meals with, if possible, organic local produce. Most of the meat I eat comes from small local farms. I mean, I know my farmers. Uh, because I do believe that food is medicine, but I don't want actual medicine in my food if I can avoid it. I try to avoid eating animals treated with antibiotics, but prior to today's show, I had only the dimmest understanding of why I was doing that. But uh, as you'll hear today, at least according to some reports, it seems that a small group of researchers are connecting the dot of antibiotic overuse in agriculture to the dot of superbugs that resist antibiotics. It's not an elaborate daisy chain either. It's possible that you might be meeting the untreatable bacterium in your UTI in the chicken you brought home from the supermarket. And that's a big part of our discussion today. And by the way, Wayne, if you're listening, I had organic broccoli and potatoes for lunch and uh, an apple. I'm convinced that I'm mending faster. I may be deluding myself, but I think food is medicine. All right, so let, let me uh, tell you who's here to talk about all this today. Dr. Michael Naylor is a pharmacist and faculty member um, with the University of Connecticut School of Pharmacy and Stores and a clinical specialist in infectious diseases at Hartford Hospital. Uh, Chip Beckett uh, is a senior veterinarian of Beckett, Beckett and Associates Veterinary Practices in Glastonbury. And joining us from Washington is David Hoffman. He is a correspondent for Frontline and a contributing editor for The Washington Post, where he was previously foreign editor and White House correspondent. Um, the front, front line special, The Trouble with Antibiotics, uh, a documentary airs tonight on CPTV, our sister TV station. Uh, it's uh, at 10 p.m., I think. But you should check your local listings. That's right, because it varies all, all over the cable map, right? We, you can't, we can never know anymore. So um, I'm going to start with you, um, David Hoffman. Uh, I, I do want to get perspectives from uh, everybody about this. But obviously, the qu- this whole question of disease-resistant bacteria, excuse me, of antibiotic-resistant resistant bacteria, uh, is a very big question. It has a lot of uh, different facets to it. The one that you're exploring in, in quite a bit of detail uh, on this uh, documentary is that question of whether you can draw a bright line to the practices 
uh, involved in administering antibiotics to farm animals, particularly on large-scale industrial farming. Uh, a, a bright line from that to antibiotic-resistant bacteria that may be affecting, that are affecting people, right? You're sort of looking, you're, you're sort of asking, is there an actual direct connection? And you found some researchers who were going after that question, correct? Yeah, that's very correct. But I would draw the line by saying we know antibiotic resistance is a problem for human health. It's a big public health problem. And we ought to be asking ourselves every day what's causing it. And I think then you begin to draw lines. You can draw them to our own behavior, um, clinicians and hospitals, and the use of antibiotics in medicine. A lot's been said about it. We made a film about that last year. And you can draw another one toward agriculture, where 70% of the antibiotics are actually sold in this country, are used in agriculture, and ask, what's the nature of that line? Is it bright? Is it generating resistance? Because if it is, that's a public health problem for all of us. Um, and just to make that clear, so that the earlier document, documentary that you made had more to do with the kinds of antibiotics that we ourselves use and the circumstances under which we use them, right? It was about human health, yes. Um, so we'll be talking about that today a little bit, too, uh, especially with the guests that we have here. But um, maybe uh, just to sort of, sort of set the stage a little bit, um, I'm going to go to Dr. Michael Naylor. Um, when we talk about um, antibiotic-resistant bacteria. I mean, uh, you know, as you just heard David Hoffman say, it, it's a big problem. It's a big problem already. Uh, I think increasingly there's a good chance that one of our any of our listeners knows at least one person who's a, had a UTI or something like that that just wouldn't respond to traditional uh, antibiotic uh, treatment. So, I mean, is there a way to characterize how big the problem is right now and the degree to which people in your line of work are starting to see it as a crisis? You know, certainly from a national perspective, the CDC has tried to put together numbers on what the type of problem it is, how, how big the problem actually is. And they estimate that about 2 million Americans each year um, can contract a, a, an antibiotic-resistant bacteria in some form or another. And that's contributing to 24, 25,000 deaths a year. And that's a, that's a low estimate or a conservative estimate on, on their part. So this is affecting uh, Americans uh, across the country. And the, the big, I think the questions that we're trying to ask today are, what is actually contributing to that? And is antibiotic use in the animal industry uh, a main driver of it? How does it look as a trend line, too? I mean, my sense, once again, just sort of consuming popular journalism about this, is that it's not stable, that, in fact, this kind of stuff is on the rise. Right. So I think since antibiotics have been introduced by people, uh, antibiotic resistant, uh, resistance has, has grown. So we, we started off with antibiotics in the 1940s with penicillin, and it takes about usually it takes about a year after an antibiotic is introduced to the market where it's thought that all the organisms that it's supposed to treat actually does work. Uh, before we start to see case reports of resistance. And sometimes the resistance grows slowly over time, and you see case reports and case reports and case reports over years or decades. And other times it, it's almost like a switch flips, and you go from uh, you know very little resistance to, to widespread uh, resistance uh, across large geographic areas, uh, likely through sort of clonal spread, uh, where the, 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 the same resistant strain has been replicated over and over and over and passed from person to person to person um, uh, after it's been created. 
I mean, the darkest scenario, and it's not one that's sketched out merely by, you know, wild alarmists, but by people from the World Health Organization and stuff like that, is that, you know, if it's unchecked, we head towards the end of modern medicine as we know it. We, we're reliant very heavily on the notion that there are prescribable antibiotics to treat infections. If suddenly there aren't, the medical model we use changes drastically. Yeah, exactly. And I, th- I think, you know, people have even coined the term a post-antibiotic era. And that is uh, sort of scary to, to think about. But I think almost every uh, infectious disease clinician that has worked in a major medical center has encountered at least one patient in their career that uh, th- th- where there really wasn't any options to give them any antibiotics that were likely to be effective. Um, in some hospitals, the it's not one that they've uh, encountered. It's many as uh, organisms might have spread throughout the hospital. I'm David Hoffman. One thing that uh, Frontline looked at previously was um, uh, KPC and uh, uh, the National Institutes of Health uh, at, a, at a hospital there where it was so severe uh, the problem of KPC, this kind of superbug uh, that was spreading. It was spreading from intensive care to other parts of the hospital. Um, they weren't even really cu- quite able to to grasp at all times how it was spreading outside of extreme containment facilities. But at one point, the director of the hospital said they, they really did discuss the possibility of actually shutting down the whole hospital. They didn't, but then they published an article about the outbreak that was highly unusual Mm. because they basically revealed to the world what a lot of hospitals don't like to tell us sometimes, which is how this infection spread, how the outbreak unfolded, how they fought it, how they struggled to figure out how the bacteria was spreading. And I think there's a great lesson for us all there because that's the world we live in. Um, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about sort of the agricultural part of this. And so, um, Chip Beckett, I'm going to have you kind of get the ball rolling. Um, you know, I think most people are kind of familiar with the idea that a lot of the meat that we eat comes from animals who get treated um, uh, with antibiotics. Um, tell us a little bit more about why animals get treated with antibiotics. Well, first, they get sick, just like people. Mm-hmm. And that's called therapeutic use. And we certainly see a lot of that. Uh, there are some specific anti infectives um, that are used for growth promotion or parasite prevention, uh, the ionophores that are not used in human medicine, but are used in a lot of cattle and pig feed, um, that prevent coccidia from growing and select for bacteria that make um, the animals use feed more efficiently, more three-chain carbon rather than two and four-chain that gets wasted. Um, And then there's prevention uses or the growth promotion aspect. And I think we were talking about it before the show, it's hard to decide. If you take cattle from Florida and North Carolina and Connecticut and ship them all to Iowa or West Texas, it's like taking the third grade from kids from all those places. They're going to get sick. So the question becomes, do we let them have a cold or do we get a bunch with pneumonia that they die? So that often those animals are put on antibiotics early is a preventative from the whole herd getting sick and dying. Although the way I understand it from uh, watching the Frontline documentary and some of uh, the other reading I'm doing, growth promotion and, and, and preventive use of antibiotics are usually split into two categories, right? I mean, there is a whole area of agricultural, and agricultural antibiotic use that's all about growth promotion and another one that's really more understood to be preventive. Do I have that right or wrong? That's the common journalism thing. I don't think that that's an accurate description always because I think a lot of the growth promotion is preventing subclinical disease so that we see at the time of death, if animals die, they're necropsied, that they don't have diseases or we have less diseases than we would expect in untreated animals. 
So th- that raises an interesting question. One of the things we're going to talk about as we go on to uh, go through this today is um, the FDA's current position on this, which is uh, essentially asking for um, a voluntary discontinuation uh, of the use of antibiotics agriculturally for growth promotion, but uh, but not necessarily for preventive medicine. If we can't draw um, a hard line between those two categories, um, how can that um, that measure by the FDA even make any sense? Well, one of the parts of that is going to be they're talking about you need a veterinarian prescription for uh, medicating the feed. And I think that's a good idea. One of the United States' problems is we've got very, very lax drug distribution laws. If you can write a label that a normal person can understand, it has to be OTC, which means you can go to the drugstore and buy it. And you can buy hundreds or tons of the product and use it. Um Other countries have decided that they need veterinary supervision to evaluate it um, with some scientific beta and strategically use these drugs, stop them as early as possible, and minimize the amount of usage. And so I think that's an evolution that we're making in this country now. All right. I want to come back to that. But David Hoffman, I want to go to you. So in this documentary, one of the things that you identified were a group of researchers who were basically asking the question, could using genomic identification, could we look at certain kinds of bacteria that would be present in industrially produced meat and, 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 and link it to bacteria that would be present in human beings who are being treated for infections that do resist antibiotics. Uh, Do I have this more or less right? And maybe you can kind of flesh out that picture. Yeah, the experiment's being conducted in Flagstaff, Arizona. Uh, It involves taking the isolates from more than 1,200 patients who had these particularly urinary tract infections with a particularly difficult type of E. coli, uh, some of which was resistant, and comparing those isolates, those uh, using whole genome sequencing to compare those isolates with uh, samples taken over a year's time from meat sold in supermarkets around Flagstaff. And I think the goal of the study is to see whether the food supply is providing any of the source of these uh, very difficult urinary tract infections that were showing up in the hospital. Yeah, uh, yeah, Dr. Naylor. You know, I'd like to, to add to that that, that – this study, I think, is very uh, attractive, but needs to go uh, a step further. So one of the things that we can see in bacteria is that they can not only reproduce and, and spread resistance from their clonal links, but they can also spread from organism to organism. So if you had an, a resistance mechanism that was generated uh, through from, from whatever means, whether it be human uh, use or, or animal production, um, it could spread from an E. coli into a Klebsiella and that resistance mechanism is probably more important than the actual bacteria itself. And although this would be groundbreaking uh, evidence to suggest that there is a link, it doesn't, even if the, the data uh, proves out not to be the case, it doesn't sort of close the loop and sort of make the, the discussion an end. So just to make sure we all understand this. By the way, if you have questions or as we go along here, we're live here in the afternoon. You're uh, certainly free to call 860-275-7266. I'll say it slower. 860-275-7266. You may also tweet us. Our tweet master, Greg Hill, is in the house. You can tweet us at WNPR, Colin. So just to sort of make sure that um, I understand it, and then uh, I assume everybody else will too, you're basically saying that um, – different kinds of bacteria can sort of talk to one another. They can exchange this information about drug resistance. Right. So the, the resistance genes or, or genes that might uh, allow people or allow the bacteria to cause infection, 
um, can be transferred on, on what they call plasmids um, and sort, sort of like giving my DNA to you uh, without having to go through uh, you know, a, a very complicated process. And so many bacteria freely give back different sort of resistance genes from each other. And that's part of what has, has led to the spread and collection of all these different resistance mechanisms that is making it hard to treat people in the hospital. Um, and David Hoffman, as long as we're talking about uh, medically complicated and uh, scientific facts that I barely understand, if, if I understood your documentary correctly, it seemed as though at least one set of scientists were saying it's also, it also appears to be the case that, um, that a, a type of antibiotic, resistance to a type of antibiotic that's administered agriculturally uh, to animals may propagate resistance to other antibiotics. In other words, I mean, I think the, the example in question was, well, I mean, maybe tetracycline isn't the most important antibiotic in the world, so we can give it to animals uh, and not worry too much about creating resistance uh, in humans. Uh, it seemed as though there was another kind of exchange going on where, uh, in fact, the bacteria were, I guess, quote-unquote, learning to resist other kinds of antibiotics. Did, am I even close to being right about that? Or? I think you're very right. You're describing this research, which we feature in the film, using the same uh, device uh, that was just described, this uh, genetic mechanism. These particular researchers showed that the use of tetracycline, which is widely used in agriculture, it's a class of antibiotics, could, in uh, a particular case of their experiment, generate some resistance to an antibiotic class that's very important to human health, cephalosporins. And there, I think, is definitely more research needed on this subject. But this process, which they called co-selection, um, raises the question that if we are using 30 million pounds of antibiotics a year in agriculture and about 40 percent of that are tetracyclines and at least some of it is um, not for diseased animals but for healthy animals, could it be generating the resistance that we're seeing in bacteria that are threatening human health? You know, Chip Beckett, as you listen to this, I mean, obviously, um, there's another side to this question, which is we we have the agriculture system that we have. Uh, it's modifiable over time. Uh, on the other hand, the system that we have right now seems to be pretty dependent uh, on this model. How dependent are we? In other words, if, in fact, we wanted to radically alter uh, our, our use of antibiotics agriculturally, um, how big a challenge would that be? Probably 40 billion lives. You know, when I went to ag school in 75, we talked about – we had the Russian wheat deal and people talked about farmers planting fence row to fence row to feed the world when we had 5 billion people. We have 9 billion now. Um, and they're largely fed by North American farmers, um, Canada and the United States. And uh, there's basically no more arable land left in the world to expand production to. So if we become a more extensive agricultural system – with lower production, lots of people aren't going to eat. They're going to starve to death. That's one of the re that's the big reason why we've had industrialized agriculture, whether it's right or wrong. Um, and the fact of the matter is, the model is really built around feeding the masses. And people buying organic food at Whole Foods is wonderful, but most of the world can't afford that. Um, actually, I was sort of asking a different question, but since you bring this up, I mean, it's. It, that's certainly true, but we also know that the production of meat is the most agriculturally intensive use of land, right? I mean, you can grow other kinds of food and, and use land more renewably and, and, and better. So when we talk about sort of feeding the world and, and 
you know, planting wheat, fence post to fence post, and then talk about raising cattle. We're really talking about two different kinds of agriculture in terms of their intensity and, and, and productiveness. Well, meat production has gone up with affluence um, and meat consumption has gone up with affluence of every economy. But it's also by far the most balanced protein source compared to plants. Soybeans and wheat aren't very well balanced for exclusive human use. They provide a lot of carbohydrates, and I think that's the basis of agriculture 10,000 years ago. But I think to balance protein, we've generally used meat. You can use soybeans and process them. There's high lysine corn. Uh, there's been things talked about growing algae and making proteins out of that, fly larvae and dehydrating it. Um, and in fact, Colin, as far as cereal grain production, that's about 15% of the world land. 40% of the land is more pasture land, which is where cattle and sheep and goats have traditionally been raised. With our industrialization, we certainly use a lot of grain. Um, we used to feed a lot of waste products to pigs that now we're trying to compost and recycle um, because it's illegal to feed them to chickens and pigs, which is what happened prior to the 30s. So I think there's a lot of things we've done, partially from a food safety standpoint, to remove garbage-fed pigs and chickens that might perpetuate disease. Uh, but this is really just another version of it. If you have enough bugs with enough things, they're going to grow uh, despite humans' best efforts. All right. Um, I think there are a lot of – this is a, a longer conversation, and we've got a lot of time to have that conversation. I want to just go to a few uh, phone calls here, especially from Bill. I was mentioning uh, uh, pastured uh, cattle. Uh, he's got pastured cattle, I think. He's calling in from Bethlehem. Hi, Bill. How you doing, Colin? Just fine. Hey, I just want to point out that the large pharmaceutical companies like Merck pay a lot of money and spend a lot of time with large animal veterinarians in the West and Midwest. And uh, the pharmaceutical company's mouthpiece, which is the NCBA, National Cattlemen's Beef Association, you know, tops how great it is that everybody should, uh, you know, put antibiotics in their animals to uh, save them uh, for a lot of different things. But point blank, and I've worked on some major, major ranches out West, and a number of the uh, ranch owners have said it's very sad that they send their uh, young um, cattle, the young steers and heifers that really aren't very productive to them. All right, so uh, we're just a reset here. We're talking about um, uh, antibiotic-resistant bacteria. We're talking about farming practices. Uh, we've got a lot of callers uh, at 860-275-7266, including the ones who do raise cattle. I think what we'll do is we'll grab a quick break here. We'll come back. I want to talk um, a little bit more about the system now and, of course, also other modifications to the system uh, that may help. So let's uh, grab that break. We'll come back after this. Streptomycin, tetracycline, penicillin, amicacin, vancomycin, mycostatin, polymyxin, bacitracin, antibiotics. You need an hour just to list them. Antibiotics. How can a germ resist them? Bacteria. I'm a certified go-getter. Won't ever come near ya. Now I've got chills, I need a sweater. If you take the offensive. All right, we're back. We're talking about a disease, uh, antibiotic-resistant diseases. Uh, I seem to be having that muddled in my head today. I think it's all the uh, NyQuil. 
Uh, sorry about that. 860-275-7266 is the number to call if you want to be part of this conversation. Let me tell you who else is part of this conversation. Uh, you're listening to David Hoffman. He's a correspondent for Frontline, a contributing editor of the Washington Post. Dr. Michael Naylor, a pharmacist and faculty member uh, at the University of Connecticut School of Pharmacy and Stores and a clinical specialist in infectious diseases at Hartford Hospital. And uh, Stuart Chip Beckett, a senior veterinarian of Beckett & Associates Veterinary Practices in Glastonbury, Connecticut. Uh, we have a lot of people calling in here as well. David Hoffman, I want to come back to you for a second. One of the things that surprised me uh, uh, watching your documentary, if once again, if I understood it correctly, was that there's no real federal regulation that requires farmers to report exactly what kinds of antibiotics they use and how. Uh, once again, did I understand that correctly? Yeah, it's a data hole. And a lot of people, including the CDC and the FDA, have uh, said to us and are discussed this on the program tonight that we need more information to begin to assess what to do. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Dr. Michael Naylor, isn't that sort of something, I mean, in order for us to even have the conversation we might want to have today, you kind of want to know what's what's going in and how. How is it being administered? What are the different drugs? Um, you can get some information about that by uh, watching, by tracking purchase. But, but I mean, I assume as a scientist and as somebody concerned about public health, doesn't it kind of make sense to, to, to know this stuff? Right. So hospitals are being asked for this uh, all across the country uh, as we speak. And so if 8,000 hospitals can collect this data, then others uh, certainly should be able to. We, we need to understand how much is being used and what it's being used for um, because we have unanswered questions. And, uh, you know, from my perspective, all antibiotic use probably leads to some amount of resistance that probably gets back to humans in some form or fashion. And the real question that we have out there is how much of the problem that we're seeing in the hospitals today is coming from the agricultural uh, field? Is it uh, a little bit or is it a lot? And, and, and we need to understand and put in the policies into place to, to have us a, a, give us a better picture at how much might be uh, being contributed from the, the ag system. Um, I want to come back to you in just a second about the whole issue of the, how hospitals have to respond to all this. But Chip Beckett, as long as we're on this topic, it, it just seems like common sense that we as a society – uh, ought to know, you know, what kinds of drugs are going into animal feed, what kinds of drugs are being used uh, prophylactically uh, on, on livestock that we eat. Um, I, I don't, would you agree with that? I do. Um, I've been critical for a long time that I think there's way too many drugs that are way too accessible for people to just decide to self-medicate. Um, there's a reason, CVS, you need a prescription, and it doesn't make sense to me that you can go buy whatever you want for your livestock and use it however you feel like. There are drug withdrawal rules, and I should be clear about that, that there, you know, if you use something legally for, for a therapeutic, it says you cannot slaughter this animal for 30 days or 5 days or 60 days or whatever it is, um, depending on the use and the drug and that sort of thing. But I do think we should have stricter rules about how people acquire drugs and the purposes for which they use them. Um, I, Dr. Michael Naylor, I just want to come back to you. I mean, and we'll set the farm part of this uh, conversation aside for a brief second and just say, you know, watching the frontline stuff and, and watching the stuff about KPC um, in that one facility, I started to wonder whether medicine should be and maybe even is bracing itself for a completely different. I, I, for one thing I started to wonder just watching particularly that the KPC thing at the NIH is, you know, wow, it, it might be the case eventually, eventually that 
it, you have to sort of reconfigure hospital models as we know them. I mean, does it make sense for somebody getting a knee replacement to go to the same building where people are being treated not only for Ebola but for you know for for superbugs that that are resistant to diseases? I mean, maybe maybe we need maybe we'll ultimately need to reconfigure the way services are delivered. So I, I think within the hospital today, when when you go to a, a, a general ward area, you probably have some selecting a patient. So in at Hartford Hospital, most of our orthopedic patients are on the same floor, and that's done for a, a variety of reasons. But I think the bigger question that needs to come up and that I think has uh, generated a lot of uh, uh, developments is how hospitals are being paid. And so we used to be paid for everything that we did, we got something. So if a person acquired an infection, the, the hospital got more money mm-hmm. because they were then treating this new infection. And now hospitals are are disincentivized uh, if people get infections. So if they if uh, if a person gets a, a hospital acquired infection, more and more insurance companies, including the the federal government insurance uh, agencies, they're not paying us for that infection. So it's it's become on the onus of the hospital to prevent infections. And I think that has been a major breakthrough, just sort of changing the payment model in reducing the amount of spread of resistance, as well as even non-resistant infections within the, uh, the healthcare system. I mean, it, it does seem to me, I mean, first of all, that's great news. And it does seem to me uh, that, you know, um, and, and so far the only conversation I've ever had like this, uh, I, I was talking to a doctor um, one time about the fact that I'm a candidate for a knee replacement. And he said, don't do it. Don't go in there. Uh, hospitals are just full of MRSA and stuff like that. And it's just not worth it. Now, it turned out a chip uh, the guy I was talking to was my dog's veterinarian. Uh, but um, but it's still, it's, it's sunk in with me a little bit. And it, it seems to me anyway that at least until we get a handle on what all this stuff is and and how prevalent it is and how likely it is to crop up somewhere, that the conversations going on between patients and care providers may want to take that into account anyway. That, you know, you, that as a a doctor talking to a patient, you may want to say, all right, well, you know, this is sort of a borderline gray area procedure. Maybe you don't want to go to a hospital right now. Right. Yeah. I somewhat agree with the, 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 the fact that hospitals are dangerous places, and uh, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't go to the hospitals if we're sick. Mm-hmm. But, you know, from a provider standpoint, we try to get people out of the hospital as quick as they can, not to save money or to make more money, but because it's safer generally for people to be at home if they can be at home and, and taking care of themselves. Um, you know, I'll, I'll bring up the example of, uh, of hand washing. So there used to be all these reports of uh, uh, hospitals sort of self-generating and self-reporting hand washing within the hospital. And you go from place to place, and everyone's over 90% of the time people did appropriate hand washing to help prevent resistance uh, or spread of disease uh, throughout the hospital. But then when you put in people or uh, who who employees didn't know who they were, and they, they, they tracked how often healthcare workers actually washed their hands, it, it ended up being 15, 25% of the time. Um, and, and now that the onus is on the hospital to prevent the spread, you know, the, the cultures have changed, and they've, they've done lots of campaigns to, to dramatically increase hand washing. And, and so now you see hospitals that say they're 90%, and it's verifiable through third-party sources. And that, we think, is cutting down on the spread of uh, uh, bacteria in the hospital. You know what's going to go next? Neckties.
Uh, yeah, well, I mean, come here next year, you're gonna have a bow tie. Well, yeah. To, to be honest, I'm I'm wearing the necktie today, uh, just in case there were pictures today. So yeah. normally I don't wear a necktie, but uh, but that's true. We we have debated that uh, at at various hospitals You're before. Just dragging around and stuff, and moving it on to the next room. All right, uh, let's grab a call or two here. It's uh, here's John in Litchfield. Hi, John. I think we got another cattle raiser here. Hi, John. Um, hey, Colin. Um, what I wanted to talk about. Go back to this idea that you have to uh, give cows antibiotics to raise them. You do not have to. Most of the antibiotics, the vast preponderance, are given prophylactically to cows to number one help that cow gain weight. And number two, to keep that cow from getting sick when you feed them nothing but corn. And corn is not what cows are designed to eat. Now, I'd say this because I've been doing this for 10 years, and I feed my cows nothing but grass or hay, and I've, I've had to give cows antibiotics less than I can count that on one fingers on one hand, and that's where they get cut in the field or something, they get an infection in their leg. That's it. You put them on there for five days, and they're done. The rest of the time, there are no antibiotics in those cows. It, it's a way of how you grow them. It's not necessarily a law of nature. John, I think you and I might even know each other. And I think also I could hear yeah. chicken. Could I hear chickens in the background? Were there chickens uh, talking? In the... that, th- those might be my German shepherds. Well, it might but, be your German uh, shepherds. I thought uh, I heard you, something. You, you have had my grass-fed beef. Yes, okay, I do know you. All right. So, but, you know, Chip, I mean, one of the questions, w- w- one of the things you addressed before is, is John's theory of this scalable? You know, is it scalable uh, beyond the model of, say, small boar Connecticut agriculture? Is it scalable to a national food-producing model? I think it's more scalable than it is. Um, I'm not sure it's scalable necessarily for the world. I'm not sure. You're saying it's more scalable than it than it has been scaled so far. Yeah. I think to go back to the general farm of the 19 pre 1940s, where people had some livestock, some grain, some vegetables, was probably a much more holistic method of farming. But it's not the way that we've evolved with prices and availability and that sort of thing and equipment. Um, I do want to say though. One thing that I think we need to keep in mind, I think it's true of people as well as animals, but it comes from the zoo and exotic world. If you feed animals right and you house them correctly, they don't get sick. And that's John's point. And I think that's true of us too. Um, And so, but the question is, what are the environmental management strategies that you have to minimize illness? And John's right. Cows are made to eat grass, not corn silage. They grow slower on grass. There's not a lot of grass to graze in Connecticut for four months of the year. So how do we make up for those problems? And that's really the issue that the ag world has when they're trying to put food on people's tables 365 days a year. You know, I think this is a good place to take our our, our second break. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about sort of um, uh, things that have been tried, both in this country and elsewhere, uh, things that have been tried uh, to kind of change the equation a little bit. So uh, let's take that break. We'll come back. We'll talk about that. sure the voluntary farm restrictions are working. There were two pigs and a turkey in line ahead of me at CVS today. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are the Knights Who Say Knee, Josh Nalea and Nia Tyler. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Mr. Ed. For show pages, articles, and Faith Middleton show staff recipes for doxycycline meatloaf, visit our website, wnpr.org. On tomorrow's show, a conversation about teaching and learning. 
And now, back to Colin. All right, so we're talking uh, about uh, antibiotic-resistant bacteria, um, uh, about how they get to us. Uh, and there'll be a frontline documentary tonight, The Trouble with Antibiotics. It airs on CPTV tonight. I have no idea what time. You have to, conduct, you have to consult your local listings. Well, 10 o'clock is a good bet, though. But consult, uh, consult your local listings uh, anyway, because it, it's a madhouse out there. Um, so um, I want to talk to uh, David Hoffman, uh, the man behind that documentary uh, right now, and just say, well, one of the things that you explore in the documentary is remediation uh, of this problem. I mean, if we're going to grant the fact that maybe it's, it's not a great thing uh, to be dumping uh, antibiotics, at least at that level, and so indiscriminately with so little oversight um, into the nation's food supply uh, via, via meat, uh, that we ought to be doing something differently. So um, what you've talked to a, a lot of people about that, including the current head of the FDA. Um, so where are we on this right now? Well, the FDA has um, issued some guidelines which call upon farmers to have a veterinary supervision of the use of antibiotics and essentially say to the makers of these antibiotics, um, they can no longer be legally sold for the sole purpose of growth promotion. Uh, Chip made an interesting point here about growth promotion and disease prevention. But the FDA has at least drawn something of a line between those two and said that the purpose of disease prevention will be okay. You can use antibiotics on healthy animals for disease prevention with the supervision of a veterinarian. You know, I'd just like to point out that for almost 40 years ago, another head of the FDA, uh, Dr. Donald Kennedy, uh, he also tried to put some limits on the use of these antibiotics because he understood that genetic mechanism that Michael mentioned. And he also tried at that time to get the veterinarians more involved with this decision-making. He was blocked by Congress and by the agricultural lobby. So the FDA is now trying to do something 40 years later, which seems to be very reasonable. I think there's an argument that we're going to continue to hear about whether uh, this is going to work in terms of making us better stewards of these antibiotics. Because after all, that's the point. We should regard these miracle drugs, as they were called, as a national resource, as a, a resource for the commons. And we don't want to waste them. We want to protect their effectiveness. And what's going to happen now is veterinarians are going to get a bigger role. I have to say a lot of people know from the history that our clinicians didn't do such a good job with this in the first decades of antibiotics. We overused them. And I hope the veterinarians have more success. But the final analysis is going to be does this change the actual behavior, the use of these antibiotics? Because if you're a resistant strain of bacteria, you know, you're not looking at the label to see, does it say growth promotion or disease prevention, right? It's coming at you and you're going to evolve to try and evade it. So I think the real issue is, what kind of performance are we going to get from these new FDA guidances? And, and one of the problems, I think, also, I mean, for example, the EU makes the same distinction, right? And they say you can't use antibiotics for growth promotion. You can use them uh, pre preventively. Not uh, Some countries, especially Denmark, and we'll talk about Denmark in just a second, go a little further or maybe even a lot further than that. But, I mean, in that situation, that doesn't really necessarily mean that you can know 
how many antibiotics are being used in, in, in animals raised as livestock, say, in the Netherlands, right? I mean, because they still have antibiotics in them. They're being used preventively. In the United States, where we don't have a reporting model, I mean, it's going to be really hard to tell, it seems to me, whether or not making this distinction and, and, and imposing these voluntary guidelines uh, are effective. But, I mean, Chip Beckett, I mean, obviously, these guidelines come down to practitioners like you. Uh, and, and so what do they mean? Are they meaningful guidelines to you? I think they're meaningful guidelines if we have a role, but like I talked about over-the-counter sales, if somebody can just go to the feed store and say, I want to buy antibiotics and put them in my feed or inject them into my livestock or give them to my chickens in the water, if they don't need me, then I don't have any role at all, which is the current status. So Mm -hmm. if somebody needs a prescription, then I'll have to say, yes, it's appropriate, but it gives us a chance to talk about as some of the cattle guys have mentioned, you know, what what sort of housing do they have? Are they dry? Are they clean? Do they have good airflow? Or is it all humid? Um, because I think that makes a tremendous difference in susceptibility. Are the animals overcrowded? Um, do they have an appropriate ration to start when they're young? And do they, does it change as they get older um, when we're looking for more fat maybe in a ruminant animal? So I think if veterinarians have a bigger role, then veterinarians can – play that role. And right now, I think uh, it's sort of the Wild West. Well, I want to come back to the, that whole question of the conditions, because I think those are super important. I think they found that in Denmark even. But, um, but Chip, just while we're on this, so in other words, the conversation that you're going to have now with a farmer based on these, uh, on these guidelines promulgated by the FDA, um, what is that conversation? You know, the farmer's going to come to you and say, can you prescribe this for me to give to my cattle so my cattle don't get sick? Um, how does that conversation go now? I mean, uh, setting aside the whole issue of conditions, because you're absolutely right, no question about it. You know, if you raise your cattle in, in bad conditions, they're going to get sick and they're going to spread sickness faster. But how about that really baseline conversation coming out of those guidelines? Well, I think it depends on what it is. You know, the average cattle herd is um, got less than 10 cows in it, and they don't talk to a veterinarian very often at all. Um, Frank Purdue has millions and billions of chickens in a relatively concentrated area, and he's got a staff of veterinarians. So I think it's going to really depend on the situation and who it is. And and they just announced, Purdue just announced that they're going to cut way back on antibiotics and be probiotic um, and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and David Hoffman, David, David Hoffman, I'm wondering whether, something. yeah, go ahead. You know, I think that uh, there's a misperception among listeners and a lot of people that this is just a black and white thing. You know, don't buy uh, food with antibiotics. I mean, antibiotics are extremely valuable for animals, too, when they're diseased or when they're sick. And we don't want a food supply that's got sick animals in it. So I, I think we shouldn't be so categorical. And, you know, when the president's advisors on science and technology looked at this recently and issued a report, They uh, took a long-term view of this. I'm not saying that they had any uh, terrific insight, but one of the things they recommended was we spend some money to, quote, develop alternatives to antibiotics in agriculture in the long term, create an institute devoted to that, come up, explore the science. And I think that that is an interesting constructive suggestion that gets away from this black or white. And the alternatives, I assume, go back to a certain degree to the stuff that Chip's talking about, right? I mean, it's a lot of it's how you raise your animals. Yes, and that's what's happened in Europe. Um, You know, they've put some more focus on the conditions that the animals are in. And again, I think that this is something that we need a lot more work on in this country. And that means we need more resources and more public attention to it. Yeah, Dr. Naylor. 
Well, I was just going to mention that you mentioned the the Danish model, and so the Danish uh, folks have has sort of dramatically restricted antibiotic use. But more recently, they put in what they call a the yellow card system, which is great for us because we now have been through the the World Cup and we now understand what the that yellow <laughs> card system is. But it's basically a warning, and so they noticed that after they cut back on antibiotic use for growth promoters, that their their use for therapeutic purposes went up. And so almost to the point where it was almost getting back up to where we were before the growth promotion was uh, was outlined. And just and so, uh, let me just pause to make sure people understand this. So basically what happens is Denmark actually goes further than the EU, and they say not just bro- bro- growth promotion antibiotics are, are banned, but uh, we don't want you to use them in this prophylactic way either. So then what happens is, okay, they're not being used. So a certain percentage of animals in that situation are going to get sick. They're going to be needed. They're going to need to be treated at that point with antibiotics, and they're probably going to be more sort of highly charged antibiotics. Uh, that's not the scientific term, but we're talking about Third, third and fourth generation cephalosporin, the stuff that you give your kid for strep throat. Right. You know, potentially that's uh, that's what's going on. And so so we have some questions that's coming out of the Danish model that's not entirely clear. Is one, is all of it really truly being used for therapeutic purposes? Or just like when you have when you have a a, a child who's sick with, uh, with an ear infection and the mom goes to the doctor and says, I really want an antibiotic for my kid. And he says, well, you don't really need it. You know, they, they still might end up giving it because they might go to another doctor down the road. So we have that sort of issue with the veterinary system. But the yellow card system that they came up with is, is kind of neat because they're, they're looking at you compared to your peer farms. And if you're using a lot more antibiotics than other farms in the area, then the perception is there's something wrong with your farm. And they mandate and they make the farmers pay for the veterinary uh, 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 personnel to come out and evaluate their system. And so it's, it's, it's putting in a peer review process into the system as opposed to being every man for, for themselves, which I think is really inventive of them. It is interesting, although, Chip Beckett, you do sort of wonder out there in the wild west and wild Midwest where I'm sure farmers uh, and David Hoffman maybe even just in a second can talk about how big agriculture does lobby against this kind of stuff. But even sort of intrinsic to the American character, you can picture this kind of rejection like, well, well are you going to tell me exactly how to farm and give me yellow cards and stuff like that? How workable does that sound? There's certainly going to be a lot of resistance. I think one of the things that we forget is I spoke at the New England Cattlemen's Group probably 20 years ago, but um, and we were talking about this issue, um, but I told them, you know, you have the right to use whatever you want. My wife, but when you sell it to my wife for steak for the kids, um, then it's her meat and you have to follow the law. And I think that sometimes we have a disconnect between these are my animals that I control as property and the meat that I'm providing for the common good. And I think we have to bridge that gap and say the end product has to be appropriate for the consumer. Um, you know, David Hoffman, I uh, buy, I do buy my meat from uh, f- small farms around Connecticut, uh, and some of the, even some of the guys who have called up here today, uh, I've bought meat from them. Uh, but uh, I'll, this problem doesn't, I don't think, really kind of exist at that level. And we've got uh, scrupulous uh, care providers like Chip uh, making sure that it, it doesn't uh, get wildly out of control. Where it gets out of control is at the level of industrial farming, right? And these, one of the things that you really kind of um, illustrate in this documentary uh, is that this is a pretty powerful lobby. 
I think uh, I'd be careful here because not everybody can afford to buy the True. kind of meat that you buy. Um, we have to think about the whole country and our society as a whole. But just to pick up on what was said before, I think I would look at it this way. As a whole society, antibiotic resistance is a threat. It's a threat to human health. It costs lives. It costs lost productivity. It's something we need to deal with as a whole. Now, Agriculture for 40 years has said we live in a separate world. Um, most of the antibiotics we want to give to the farm animals are not significant for human health. And a part of them, the ionophores, are definitely not significant. But some part of them have maybe minor uses in human health. And it seemed that for a long time they would say this status quo is just fine. We're not using the medicines that affect human health. But I think as we demonstrate in the show tonight and as m some people are being asked the question – we live in the same ecosystem with those bacteria, and both animals and man don't have a great wall that separates the kind of resistances that can go back and forth through those genetic mechanisms. So if we have a threat to our society as a whole, the status quo isn't really acceptable. And I think that agriculture needs to be asked this question. Um, you know, are you going to look at your role in this in a constructive way, the same way that we've looked at clinicians in hospitals and said we need to be better stewards? We can't solve the whole problem by simply addressing half of it. Um, yeah, just real quick, Chip, because we're wrapping up here. There was a story, too. I want people to realize this is a two-way street. Um, a couple of years ago when the Vet Association was talking about it, they were talking about a dairy farmer, I believe in Minnesota, that had a MRSA infection. And they did some genetic testing, and the cows subsequently ended up with the same MRSA infection, but they didn't have it before he was sick in the hospital. So they go back and forth, and it is a whole society problem. Yeah, it can be, go both ways. I want to thank everybody who was on the show today. Uh, David Hoffman uh, from Frontline. Watch the documentary tonight. I'm betting it's going to be on at 10, but, uh, you know, I mean, check your local listings. Uh, Chip Beckett, uh, senior veterinarian for Beckett & Associates Veterinary Practices in Glastonbury. Dr. Michael Naylor, a pharmacist and a faculty member at University of Connecticut School of Pharmacy and Stores uh, and a clinical specialist in infectious diseases at Hartford Hospital, a very responsible man. I asked him for a Z-Pack. He said no. I asked him for a Vicodin. He said no. It wouldn't give me anything. Uh, but that's, you know, uh, that's good. You're a bulwark. Don't listen to people like me. I'm needy. I want drugs. Uh, all right. Uh, we're going to tomorrow. I'll be on the wheelhouse to talk about politics at 9 o'clock in the morning. And we have a really interesting panel discussion. We recorded it. Um, panel discussion sounds so boring. That's not what it was. A very interesting conversation about teaching and learning, which we recorded a couple of weeks ago at the Watkinson School. We're turning that into tomorrow's show. So tune in for that as well. Thanks to Betsy and Kayone. Superbug Kyone, what are you so happy about? I've become resistant to antibiotics. Oh yeah, well you're still no match for a shot of whiskey and a hot cup of tea. I'm a superbug, Greg. I can even overcome a hot toddy. <laughs>